This episode, we talk about the most common New Year's resolution, losing weight and having a healthy lifestyle with our first ever guest on the podcast. We also dive into the body positivity movement and how all of this is particularly relevant during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jacqueline and I'm just an American. As we start the new year, people talk a lot about New Year's resolutions and goals they want to achieve. Everyone knows one of the most common New Year's resolutions people make has to do with losing weight, getting healthier, and exercising more. This year, it seems to be even more relevant, as so many people I've talked to have lamented the fact that they have adopted some less than stellar habits during their time in quarantine. People have been home more, people have been less active, and some have, you know, even been maybe eating in ways that they don't normally eat. So today I want to have a discussion about this topic that is so relevant to so many people on the most personal level. To have this conversation, I want to bring on someone I know in my personal life who has gone down the path of losing a significant amount of weight and adopting a healthy lifestyle. That person is actually my husband, Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm very happy to be your first guest, although I am apprehensive about being your first guest. All right. That's okay. We're just going to have a discussion. So there are actually a lot of things I want to talk about today on this subject with you. I want to talk about how this topic is viewed and discussed in our culture. I want to talk about the body positivity movement and even how the COVID pandemic relates to all of this. But first, I want to start with your personal journey because I think it is really interesting and something that a lot of people can relate to. So I met you when we were 14 years old. And basically, for the entire time I've known you, you had a bit of a weight issue. So let's kind of start at the beginning. So what were some of the habits? Because when you were a kid, you were not overweight. And so when did you kind of start gaining weight? When did you kind of start adopting bad habits? And what what was kind of your lifestyle for most of that time? Well, I mean... When you're in high school and or even middle school for that matter, growing up and healthy habits are not part of your daily routine, you kind of don't know where it starts. You just kind of just end up there, right? So being in high school, the only reason I probably wasn't fat was because we were in extracurricular activities like band and always moving, always doing something, but we weren't exactly living healthy lifestyles. So once all that ends and you go to college and you get a job... And that job is you sitting for very long periods of time. Those healthy habits that you never had kind of end up putting you in that position to where you gain weight. So I think it was more of a slow process ever since we graduated high school into just continually gaining weight and thinking, oh, this is just how life is, (laughs) you know, as you get older and you you don't actually see the change overnight. So it's just something that continually, continually like you morph into that. No, that, and I think that's how a lot of people find themselves. It starts off something slow and then all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, oh, wow, okay. So over much of, you know, our adult life and the time that we've known, I've known you and we've been married, I've seen you try different things to lose weight. So, and some of them were, were somewhat successful and you would lose some of the weight, but then you would end up gaining it back. But about two years ago, something changed and it was successful this time. So what was it about those things that you tried in the past that were not successful? And what was it about this time that finally made you find success? 
when I first, when I would lose the weight and gain it back, I was normally trying like a fad diet or in one instance, it was a diet pill that promised take the pill, shred the weight. Yeah, that happened for like a month, but then you stop taking the pill because it's too expensive or you just stop taking the pill because you're just taking a pill and you gain the weight back. It's not an actual change in your habits. It's not a change in how you're living your life from that transition from way before to two years ago, it changed from actually caring about making a routine change into healthy habits instead of trying just a fad diet out. Right. Because about two years ago, you started dropping weight and you've maintained it. And you are now in better shape and healthier than any time that I've known you. Um, So what was it about what happened two years ago that really made you find success? Two years ago, I heard the word intermittent fasting. And just like every other fad diet that I had tried in the past, I was like, oh, look, something new. And I'm hearing it a lot. And you don't know what it is. So I'm going to try it. Well, I told myself that I wasn't going to ever try a fad diet again. So instead of just trying it, I just kept on researching it because I kept on hearing it. You know, when you like you hear a word and you're like, I've never heard that word before. And then you hear it constantly ever since that time you noticed it. Well, that's what I kept on hearing was intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting. You should do intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting is a quick way to lose weight. And it's like, okay, so what is intermittent fasting? And so I looked it up and I was like, I'm going to try this, but I didn't want to just try it. I wanted to do it right. So I found an article from a tech journalist that I followed named Kevin Rose, and he was making an app for intermittent fasting. And so I started following the development of this app, and I and he brought in a doctor and a PhD that was experimenting with intermittent fasting on himself. And he was recording the journey and recording the steps and what he was doing and how it was affecting his blood sugars and his eating habits and his gut health and all those things that I had no idea what any of that meant, but that's what got me started down the rabbit hole of intermittent fasting. So I followed this doctor named Peter Atia into this journey of finding out how intermittent fasting was affecting him in his journey. And that opened all the doors that I needed to walk through myself in changing how I approach eating, exercising, being healthy. So what was the first thing? So Intermittent fasting, for anyone who doesn't know, is this way of eating, basically, where you limit the time during the day that you are able to consume food. So what were your what was your first hour breakdown that you started with? First hour set that they normally suggest for people that are doing intermittent fasting is 16 hours off and eight hours on. So you're eating for eight hours out of your day and the other 16 hours out of the full day, you are not consuming any calories. Okay. And how did that go at first? Uh, The first four days were miserable as I documented and tell everyone that asks me, how does intermittent fasting like work? I say, well, the first four days are going to suck, but it was horrible. But then after four days, your gut health changes and the bacteria in your gut die off and you create new ones based off the food that you're eating and based off of the fact that you are letting your body go through its normal processes. You're not just digesting. So like the whole idea of intermittent fasting is that you are during those time restrictions, your body is not just digesting. So after the eight hours that you've been eating, your body digests for about two, three hours. And then the rest of those 12 to 13 hours, your body is doing other things, other maintenances to make 
to check to make sure your body's doing everything that it needs to do to stay healthy. So it's doing like muscle repair, all kinds of other things. So basically your body is just not constantly digesting. Exactly. That's the problem when you are eating constantly throughout the day. Your body is only in the digestion mode. So that's all it's doing. It's not doing anything else in the normal fashion that your body's meant to and designed to do. So there's a lot of discussion about intermittent fasting that in and of itself, it does not actually make you lose weight, but it's a great tool to use in order to lose weight because the the magic you know, formula for losing weight is you have to burn more calories than you take in, right? Exactly. So if you, during the six to eight hours that you're on, that you are allowed to eat, if you take in, if you just gorge yourself and take in a ton of calories, but then you fast for 16 to 18 hours, you're not going to lose weight. No. If you, if on those eight hours that you're eating, you consume more calories than your body naturally burns or that you're exercising, you will continue to gain weight. But it is a good tool and it was something that got you started on your process of losing weight because it it, it helps you to limit your calories, right? Because most people can't eat that many calories in such a short time window. After those first four days, I moved into the next tier of um, hours, which is 18 off, six on. So that's even less time to eat the food that you normally eat. So basically what you're doing is you're kind of coaching your body into knowing that we're only eating during a certain amount of time. Those other times that you're off, your body knows like, oh, we're going to go back into this other zone. So that's why after the first four days, it was easier. And I like I tell a lot of people that ask me, oh, how is it? I say first four days miserable. But after that, it's kind of crazy how awesome it is because you're not hungry. And because you have trained your body to only eat during those specific time windows, it's not hard. And I think that that is one thing I like try to get across to people is like, I'm normally the kind of person that I take the path of the least resistance. That's why fad diets worked for about a month. And then that's why I gained it all back because you hit that wall and then it's hard. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm not doing that anymore because it's hard. Mm -hmm. This after those first four days was easy and it was kind of crazy how easy it was. But that's kind of the setup that got me into intermittent fasting and then moving into calorie counting and kind of like a ketogenic diet to kind of help boost my weight loss because I wanted to actually lose the fat before I started doing anything else. So because as you've mentioned, like you talked to a lot of people about it, when you first started doing intermittent fasting, I kind of was like, that's crazy. I can't, I couldn't do that. Like I have to eat breakfast. I have to eat dinner and whatnot. But then I did try it and I started doing it and I found exactly what you found, which is once you get into it, it's kind of unbelievable how easy it is. Like it's, it's just not difficult. And you talk to so many people who hear about it and they're like, oh, that's so hard. I couldn't do that. That's exactly how, what I thought when I first heard about it. But it is remarkably easy once you get over that first hump. Yeah. And that's one of the things that when I was researching, it talks a lot about how the gut bacteria are the ones that are sending the signals to your brain on when you're hungry, on what you're hungry for and all those kinds of things. So after those first four days, why it's so miserable is because that gut bacteria that you normally are used to is dying off and it's sending signals to your brain like, Hey, we're dying. (laughs) Can you please give us what we want? Which is all the stuff you don't want to eat. But that's kind of what I try to tell people because they don't really understand that 
Well, I think that when you first hear intermittent fasting, what you think of is just like you're limiting the amount of time and it's just designed to make you eat less. And that's it. And that's that's all there is to it. But there is this whole science behind it and the science that it delves so much deeper into your gut health and your body's systems that it goes through on a 24 hour basis. And so that's the part that I think learning about that was really interesting for me. Yeah, that was probably why I think this has been so successful for me and for other people that I know that are doing intermittent fasting is that once you kind of understand how it all works, you kind of dive in further into that kind of science and all the research that's done about gut health and fasting and the types of things that we're not taught in high school or college about body health and cellular health and gut health. Those are things I'd never heard of until I Mm -hmm. researched intermittent fasting and started following that Dr. Peter Tia. One of the things that I think is really interesting about, you know, as I've been by your side through this entire journey is how many people have stopped you to ask you about your weight loss? Because you've lost upwards of what, 80 pounds? Probably a little more than that, but about 80. Yep. About 80. Okay. So, um, I mean, that's a significant amount of weight. And so, you know, anybody who has seen you <laughs> compared to, you know, two or three years ago, it's it's very obviously noticeable. And what's interesting to me being by your side through this entire thing was, is just how many people stop you to ask you about it. And they don't, it's not just conversation like, oh, how'd you do it? It is in-depth, detailed questions. How did you do it? What is this, like, what what is your secret? What did you do? What was your diet like? All these things. And so that it's really interesting to me because, and it kind of brings up a question about what you just said, which is, is there a lack of education and knowledge on this subject? But also, second part of my question is, is there, there seems to be a lot of distrust when it comes to, because there are, I mean, you go to any bookstore, you go to any, anywhere, and there are shelves and shelves of weight loss books. And like you said, there's fads and there's pills and there's all these things. There seems to be this kind of, you know, image that it is a money making machine. And so I think there's a lot of distrust that people have because it's like, okay, like you said, with the pill that you tried, yeah, you're going to spend all this money on something. It might work for a little bit or it might not work at all, but it's just designed to take your money. So do you think that there is a lack of information, a lack of education, or do you think it's just a lot of distrust? What do you think it is? I think it's a compounding issue with the fact that everybody's trying to sell somebody something else. So I would say it's a capitalistic problem, but it's not really a capitalistic problem in the sense that it's more we need to find the bad actors mm-hmm. in this kind of segment of health and medicine and science around how the body works. I mean, a lot of the research about intermittent fasting and about kind of just a healthy habit, habitual like being of exercise and what to eat and the different types of kind of like the call it macro counting. So protein, carbs and fat, those that's all relatively new. I wouldn't say it's new, but the fact that it is so popular and it's so continually researched right now in such a quick manner is newer. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know and identify what is true and what is not true or what is being just peddled for quick cash and quick turnaround. Well, and I think what's really interesting, you know, and why I wanted to talk to you specifically about this is because we are average Americans, right? Like, 
we are not in a situation where you are in a position to spend thousands of dollars on nutritionists and dietitians and personal trainers and all of that. And the thing with intermittent fasting that I think is interesting is it doesn't cost anything. And it's kind of, you know, one of those things where it's like, it's something that literally anybody can do. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of apps on like uh, cell phones and on the internet where you can pay and have like that kind of general education fed to you as you're going through the intermittent fasting process. Um, I use one myself, but I don't pay for it, but it just helps you understand the process and what's going on at a, what time of day and what health benefits are kind of tied into the different fasting regimens that, that are out there. But at the same time, you're right, fasting is free, so it's not something that you can capitalize on unless Mm -hmm. you find some clever way to do it via, like, an app. But at the same time, it's not going to be something that you see the health community kind of grasp and try to sell because they can't really sell you that Mm -hmm. unless they put it as part of a program behind a paywall. So that's kind of why I think it's not generally understood. And at the same time when you start talking about intermittent fasting to people who don't know anything about it, their eyes start to glaze over at the second that you start to say that you can't have any calories after six hours. And they're just like, what? That's insane. You're crazy. And it's like, it sounds crazy, but at the same time, don't you want to see the results that you see other people experiencing? Right. And and maybe as more people try it and more people have success, like actual success stories with it, then that might be something that grows Mm. um, in the future. Let's talk about exercise because intermittent fasting was just the start of this for you. And then you mentioned the ketogenic diet where you basically cut out all carbs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But exercise is a big part of it. And it's, again, we are average Americans. We are not people who have the time to spend three hours a day at the gym working out. I mean, we have three kids, you have a full-time job. There's, there's just, we don't have the time to, you know, dedicate to it the way that like celebrities can and maybe people who are independently wealthy and they can pay for all this stuff. So exercise is really hard and it's really discouraging for people. I know I personally, after having three kids and just some other health issues and that made it really difficult for me to exercise as I got back on the exercise train, it's like that first couple of weeks is just like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. And I think that's why so many people just stop and give up. I mean, I've done that over the course of my life. So being someone who had, you know, you wanted, I think, what was your original goal? To lose like 50 pounds? My original goal was just to see if it would work. Okay. (laughs) But at the same time, actually, I did have a goal. I did, I wanted to be in the body mass index of not obese. Okay. So that was my goal. Okay. So you were, your your BMI was considered obese. Okay. So exercise, I'm assuming at the beginning was difficult. Yes. Uh, and at the same time when you're counting calories and you're doing a ketogenic diet and you're fasting, you don't want to overdo it with your exercise because you will fail because Mm -hmm. at when you're, doing intermittent fasting and you're counting calories, you're in a sense starving yourself, but you're not starving yourself in the sense that your body's starving, Right. but your body has to switch from burning carbs to burning fat as energy. And that is, your body doesn't like to do that when Mm -hmm. it's been doing the opposite for so long. And I've been doing it since ever. So it's a very hard switch. And that's also part of why it 
those first four days are miserable because your body just is fighting that switch. Right. So you don't want, I didn't exercise for the first two weeks at all because I didn't want to jack up this process because I didn't know what was going to work, how it was going to turn out in the end. But after those first two weeks and I got into a more of a regimen, then I started doing low impact cardio to kind of help the process along. Like I'm burning these calories that I'm currently eating in those windows so that I lost weight faster. And at the same time, which was kind of hindsight, I was also building up my tolerance for cardio exercise. Because what did you start with? I started walking and just walking as fast as I can without like sweating too much. I didn't want to be sore the next day because I knew that if I hit any extra hurdles in this process that I might not succeed. So my main goal was to just push myself as far as I can push myself without it being what I considered hard. So you would walk really fast for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. Okay intervals I did it at work on my break like my a.m. break and my p.m. break and then I also did it during my lunch hour so Mm -hmm. I'm just walking that's it and over time I walked faster Mm -hmm. and then I got into actual running and now I can run for six to eight miles straight without stopping yeah that's amazing yeah and I think that the the biggest thing about your story that really hit home for me is and that I think is really could be really helpful for average everyday people who are looking to, you know, start on this is you don't have to overdo it at the beginning. Like you can actually ease yourself into it. I think that for so many people, like as I said, you know, you think like, okay, I'm going to work out today and I haven't worked out in, you know, two years. Mm. So I'm going to work out today and I'm going to run for two miles. And you get through that first half of a mile and you're like, no, I'm not going to run for two miles, you know, and it just becomes so hard. And then you're just like, this is too hard. I can't do it. But when you start slow and you allow yourself to start slow, it's amazing how far that you can come Mm. and how far that you can go. Yeah. I think that that identifying your limitations early on will help you create a structure of kind of mapping out what those limitations are currently and how you progress slowly into increasing those limitations Mm -hmm. so like at first it was 10 minutes of fast walking the next week I was getting those 10 minutes and I was going further so Mm -hmm. I was walking faster in those 10 minutes and just at week after week that number just kept on increasing until I was like I can just run and Mm -hmm. not walk and I think that that is kind of like the metaphor for this entire process is that you need to walk before you can run yeah And it sounds so cliche, but that is kind of the whole idea behind that cliche is that you need to start small and just gradually ease yourself into it. Like in the fasting regiment, you can go all the way in upwards of 72 hour fasts. Hmm, And that sounds insane. And if you did that today and you've never fasted before, you will fail. Yeah. Like, cause you, you have can't to run. Start slow. You can't not do that. So yeah. everybody that asks about the program, I say, just start with the 16, eight. And do it for until you get over that first hump. And once you do that and you see how easy it is, you can gradually increase that time you're not eating and shrinking that window where you are eating. So what have you, once you reached kind of your ideal weight, what did you change? Do you still do intermittent fasting? Do you, you know, obviously you're working, you're working, you're exercising because there's a lot, the health benefits of running and exercising and cardio and all that. But did you change your eating once you hit your ideal weight? Now that I track calories and 
nutrients and kind of like the macro ratio of protein, carbs, and fat, I'm now trying to hit more of a target nutritional balance. Like I'm trying to eat a certain amount of protein, eat a certain amount of carbs, eat a certain amount of fat, but change what I'm eating to get to those num- those numbers so that I'm hitting other markers. Like I'm trying to get more potassium in my diet. I'm trying mm-hmm. to get more magnesium in my diet. I'm trying to get more omega threes and less omega sixes all to kind of balance out the actual health of my body. Now that we're two years down and we're going into like this new era of, I can now run and I can now exercise. I'm working on changing the way I physically am. Like I want to be stronger. I want to look more healthy. I want to tone my muscles. I want to be able to lift more weights. I want to be able to have more energy during the day. And those are kind of like, that's the next phase of what my nutritional journey is. What's interesting to me is that like when you were in that time of losing weight, you were extraordinarily strict on your diet. But now that you've hit your ideal weight, I've noticed like you like over the holidays or on a weekend, or if we go to a party or something like you, you're able, you eat, you enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. You enjoy your food. Um, you've always been a foodie. You you know, so you, I'll never stop being a foodie. Yeah. So I think that's another thing that's really encouraging to people is the fact that, you know, yes, the losing is hard, but it's not, it's not like you can never have a cookie again. No. And it, the interesting thing about losing weight and exercising and training your body to be healthier and have a more healthy routine is that when you're not healthy and you're not in that routine, it's not this huge deficit Like I can go to Christmas dinner and have a full plate of food and eat more calories than I normally would eat that day and go over my normal threshold. And the next day I I didn't gain 80 pounds. Mm -hmm. So when you do get off the wagon, it's not that hard to get back on. Yeah. It's not that hard to get back into the place you were before. Yeah. And that's encouraging. I think that's encouraging because it's like, it's not like, okay, this is it. I can, I can never enjoy myself again. You know, you've ruined everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so I think that that's really interesting. How has your life changed after adopting this healthier lifestyle? Well, you always ask me why I did this. And my original, and my still to this day, my answer is that I wanted to have more energy and I wanted to be more present in my children's lives Mm -hmm. because when you're overweight and you're not used to extraneous activity chasing kids around the house or even playing games with them or going outside and throwing the baseball back and forth it doesn't seem like something you want to do so the whole point of this process was to get to a place where I had the energy and the willpower to be present every day in everybody's life, not just my kids, but like at work, my friends, all of that. Cause when you're overweight and you feel like there's nothing's going to change and you keep, and it sounds so funny to say this out loud, but, and you just eat to eat because it tastes great. You just, you lack that motivation to do anything else. Like everything seems so hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so hard to get off the couch. It's so hard to walk up the stairs. It's so hard to get on the floor and play with your kids. It's so hard to get in the car, go meet someone for a drink and have a good time because it's just a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And it sounds so sad saying it out loud right now, but that is exactly where I was two years ago. And that is the main motivation to what even started this process to begin with. So now that I'm out of that rut 
I am more present in my children's lives. I'm enjoying every moment. I'm not as annoyed going into work every day. I'm more willing to go and do things that I wasn't able to do before. And I, I mean, I remember a while ago, but I was going, I would did this regiment where I was taking spin classes and it was really hard. And I, I really got into pretty good shape. And I just remember one time going to a theme park and walking around and just like, why is it so easy to walk? Like it just felt so easy to walk. And that moment just really stuck in my head because it was like, this is what it feels like to be in shape. And I, as you know, over the last year, I, in part because you've motivated me, but, um, I've been able to start working out again and whatnot. And I feel that again, and it's an amazing feeling. And once you get there, you really don't ever want to go back. Oh no, you never want to turn around and say that the life before or the feelings before or the routines before were better. And you do, you can't even like when I sit here and I'm talking to you about this, like saying things out loud from before two years ago just sounds so incredibly insane to me. Yeah. Like, like and what? sad, like that. I didn't want to get out oh, of the yeah. house and go visit with people right. or play with my children. It just sounds so sad. Like, right. Yeah. So with all of that conversation, I want to talk to you and ask you a bit about the body positivity movement that is out there that seems to be gaining steam as somebody who has been kind of on the before side of it and now you're on the other side of it, what, is, what are your thoughts about that movement? I think it's pure crap. Just um, plain and simple crap. Plain and simple <laughs> crap. Because body positivity is like telling a crazy person they're fine. Well, we do that a bit too in our society. And I think that that is not the right stance. When we approach a problem in society, we can't just let it be the status quo. We can't let it seem like, uh, like a lot of people are like, get rid of the word normal. And mm -hmm. it's like, okay, but how about we replace it with healthy? Right. How about we replace it with optimal? But even that... I mean, just this week, there was, um, it got a lot of attention. The cover of Cosmopolitan Magazine is a woman who is significantly overweight. And the caption on the picture is, this is healthy. And it's just amazing That's to me. insane. It is. And, it, and, you know, you look at that and you're like, you know, when the body positivity movement first came out, and I could be wrong about this, but this is just kind of my perception of it. I feel like the original intent behind it was that, you know, People come in different sizes. Shapes and sizes. Yeah, yes. I mean they do, and and some people are just never going to be super skinny. You know, some people have bigger bone structure or whatnot. You know. Okay, Cartman, I'm not fat. I'm big boned. <laughs> like, but, yeah, no, but I mean, I think that the original intent behind the body positivity movement was to sh to to make people understand that like they have worth. Okay. And, and they have like, they're not terrible people. They're not unworthy, you know, and even the people who say like, you know, your beauty comes in every different shape and size and whatnot. I was okay with that because beauty is subjective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But we have now gotten to a point, I think, where the body positivity movement, we have gone from, okay, we just want to encourage people to not, you know, hate themselves or feel bad about themselves. Now it's actually promoting obesity. Now it's actually saying this is healthy. And 
it's crazy because, you know, these are, and, and I'm sorry, but a lot of these people are the, on the same side of the society that are screaming at everybody that we need to listen to science. We need to listen to science. Okay. Well, science clearly tells us that obesity increases heart disease. It increases diabetes. It increases high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And all of those things are going to cause you to die sooner. And so what is the definition of healthy that we're, that they're using when they're talking about this? Because I don't know what world diabetes and heart disease and all of these things is healthy. With America being the most obese nation in the world, it's hard to not see this as just a Band-Aid over the actual problem. It, just like everything else in our society that we're trying to solve and make better, instead of actually breaking up what causes all these issues and fixing each one of those individually, we're trying to say this one size fits all. So this one size of telling everybody that obesity is okay is negatively impacting those people still. Like just telling them that they're okay doesn't solve the problem. They still are going to be obese. They're still going to suffer from the ramifications of being obese. Right. Those consequences don't go away. Yeah. Like if you're significantly overweight, that scientifically increases your risk of heart disease, for, for instance that heart attack is not going to not come because your self-esteem is higher. Yeah. You're you still know. going to suffer the consequences of being obese. And I really, I really feel like it, it's such a disservice and it is such, it's even like almost insulting because you're, what you're telling people is that they're not capable of making healthy lifestyle choices and changes that they're not strong enough. They're not good enough. They're not capable of it. So they have to just accept how they are because they can't do anything to fix it. And the truth is, is they can, they can do things. To, and, and it's not, the thing is, is like if somebody is making unhealthy lifestyle choices, the number one person who is suffering from those choices is that person. So, you know, it, it, we've, we've come to a point in society and, you know, as a mom, I've seen this a lot because there's this, you know, thing called mommy shaming, right? And it's all about the shaming. And it's something that, you know, mommy shaming is something that, like, I don't agree with. I don't think that moms should be shamed individually. Like when, you know, even when celebrities post pictures of them with their kids and stuff and people just attack them because they, you know, have the car seat wrong or they, oh, how, do, you know, it's like, just stop, okay? It's it, Parenthood is hard and whatnot. However, I think that we... We're so afraid of being labeled as shamers that it's preventing people from having some really important conversations that we need to have that is actually going to help people be healthier, feel better, be happier in their lives, and, I mean, really live longer. It, it always comes back to we hear a lot about society doesn't know what's good for it, so we're going to tell you what's good for it. And it's not, it's never like, here's the actual keys to the problem. It's just blanket statements that don't fix anything. Mm -hmm. And we keep coming back and saying, well, now we have another problem because you guys keep telling everybody obesity is okay. More people are now obese. Right. So just like everything else in society as in general, it's a pendulum. Like, wouldn't you say, like, if you look back on history before this pendulum swung in the obesity, like camp before that a lot of the body imagery that we had before obesity was extreme anorexia right. and mm -hmm. the other type of body shaming which was 
you don't look like a model. So right. you have an issue. We, we keep swinging in the most extreme, extreme yeah. directions every time we come to try to solve a problem. Because instead of actually solving the problems, we're just putting Band-Aids over it right. and saying, okay, well, we can't shame you into being skinny. So now you're going to get fat. And now we can't shame you because you're fat. So you're not going to be skinny. So it just keeps on swinging. We need to find that balance in the middle, which is, I think finding out what works for you as a human being in terms of health, wellness, exercise, Mm -hmm. all those things that are actual solutions to problems. Those are what we need to be more focused on instead of body anything. Like I think that the fact that there is a lack of shame in society right now is a problem because shame is what prevents you from doing certain things that society thinks of as shameful. Right. And well, and it, and that's a that's a much much larger yeah. It's a conversation. Way huge, and it encompasses everything, not right. just obesity and body shaming. Well, we're and and it is. It's like it, it's a truly a topic for another day because we can go down a, the rabbit hole on that one. But you know, when I was talking about the word them using the word healthy, it's like there's no such thing as truth anymore. There's no such thing as you know the meanings of words don't matter anymore. Because it's like, well, anything I say is healthy is healthy. And it's like, no, there are things that are healthy and that are there are things that are not healthy. Mm-hmm. A carrot is a lot healthier than a slice of chocolate cake, according to science. And you, you just look around at society. And like you said, you know, it's like we're in this weird place where it's like, OK, we all remember when we were kids, you know, and, and kind of, you know, when our parents were kids, kind of before all of this, you know, inclusivity and all of these ideas came about where it's like the overweight kid was the kid that always got made fun of. And we don't want that. I mean, we don't want that in society. Like we, we do want a kinder world and we do want, you know, people to have respect for each other and, and look at each other as a human being who is worthy of love and respect and dignity. But how can, you know, it's hard to find, like you said, that balance between, okay, no, we're not going to shame people individually. Like we're not going to make people, you know, tell somebody that they are terrible or, you know, insulting and offensive. But we also don't have to say, that your choices and your lifestyle is healthy when it's clearly not, you know, hopefully when the pendulum swings back, we can find that, you know, more middle ground where it's like, okay, we can say there are certain things in life that are healthy and there are certain things. I mean, I have unhealthy habits, you know, I mean, I'm somebody who is in generally in pretty good health, but I still have some unhealthy habits. And I, I mean, I, getting on the treadmill after taking a week off, you know, or a week and a half off after, after Christmas over the Christmas holiday, It's been rough this week. Like, you know, I mean, I've been having a hard time. Everybody, you know, makes choices that sometimes are not the ideal choices. But I think the thing is, is to be able to say, yeah, okay, I enjoyed myself over Christmas. I took a break over Christmas. Was that the healthiest thing to do? No, it wasn't. But just to acknowledge the truth. I think that that is a big part of this, of any of these conversations is just being able to acknowledge the truth and being able to look at one's own failures and not completely beat yourself up over it and just, you know, feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just so awful and horrible and I'm such a failure. No, you don't have to beat yourself up over it. Okay. And if you are somebody who is overweight and and has some of these medical issues, you don't have to beat yourself up over it. You are, you know, it's not about that, but at the same time, we need to stop saying it's just as good as, you know, eating right and exercising and having a healthier lifestyle. Yeah. The biggest, I think, missed message this last year has been how health is a natural 
defense against COVID. That was actually the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was I think it's fascinating to me that most of the comorbidities that people have who have had significant, um, severe, I should say, you know, reactions to COVID-19 um, and, and those who have passed away other than elderly are people, a lot of them are issues that are connected with weight. Not always, not every time, you know, there, there are people who have died who have not had any, you know, health issues or who are in good shape. But science tells us the vast majority of non-elderly people who have had really bad reactions to it are people who have these health issues. And I mean, honestly, like even I'm sure people listening to this right now are going to get upset or offended by me saying that it, they call it victim shaming. Again, we're back to shaming. Well, and instead of shaming, we need to approach it in a, in a sense that this is one thing you can do right now that is not locked down Yeah, <laughs> that you can change about your life that you have control over. Mm-hmm. That is a natural defense against COVID. You want a vaccine? Go run. You want a vaccine? Go exercise. You want a vaccine? Change how you eat, what you eat, what you're putting in your body. You literally have more control over this defense than a vaccine does over your entire health. Yeah. It's really been interesting to me that no one wants to talk about this. No one wants to talk about this because, again, it's considered victim shaming. And I think that there's a line. Like, I would never look at somebody and say, well, you're overweight or you're unhealthy, so you deserve to have a bad reaction or you deserve to... I mean, of course, nobody is saying that. And every severe reaction and every death is a a tragedy and it's awful. And we're talking about innocent people who don't deserve it. But I I think that that's where the line is drawn. And it's kind of funny because it, it really makes me think, not to go off on a bit of a tangent here, but it really makes me think of just kind of Christian philosophies on life and, and the idea of judgment. Right. And, and I think so many people get this wrong where it's like when Jesus says, you know, you are not to judge your fellow human being, like let he without sin cast the first stone, all of that. What he's talking about is we are not allowed and we are not supposed to, I should say, judge individual other people and pass judgment on them. But that does not mean, and this is where I think a lot of people get it wrong. That does not mean that we cannot say that a sin is a sin. That does not mean that we cannot say that this behavior is wrong and this behavior is right. And I feel like that same philosophy is what we should be applying in this conversation where it's like, no, we are not going to say that an individual person, you know, either deserved what they got. Like we're not going to pass judgment on an individual person, but as a society, as a culture, I think it is, it should be a huge wake up call. Like, Hey, when stuff like this happens, you know, it's important for each individual person to make sure that they are doing what they can do to keep themselves as healthy as humanly possible, okay? I mean, we all know people who have chronic conditions and diseases that are absolutely not related at all to any of their lifestyle choices, okay? I mean, we all know people in that situation. I mean, we have family members who have lupus, for instance, and that's not related to a lifestyle choice at all. But some of this stuff is related to a lifestyle Mm -hmm. choice. Well, and even if you have a chronic illness or you have a, a disposition to a specific issue in your life being healthy and changing your habits only helps you right and it will never not help you right like even if someone can't go out there and run eight miles because they have osteoporosis or something they they, they physically cannot do it eating better Mm -hmm. doing what exercise you can do will never ever put you at a disposition walking will only yeah it will only only put you in a better place and in, in a lot of cases i'm not 
a scientist or a doctor, but in most cases, just changing those basic habits increases your quality of life and increases your defense against those chronic issues that you may have. Yeah. One of the things that a family member of ours who is in the medical field tells me all the time is she says, like, in, in, in half of the things that I tell her about, she's like, drink more water, drink more water, drink more water, drink more water. And She's right, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like when on the days when I it's kind of interesting, actually, on the days when I focus on my water consumption and I drink a lot of water, my workouts are so much easier than on the days when I'm more dehydrated. It's not just like, oh, you hear it and you're like, yeah, OK, whatever. I got to drink more water. It actually you can feel it and it makes a difference and it improves your quality of life. And I think that that's something that not only do most people, you know, want, but but people we deserve that. Like we deserve to live the best quality of life that we can possibly live. Everybody deserves that. And that brings it kind of full circle to the body positivity movement and saying it is a disservice to put out an article that says this is healthy, this is natural, this is okay. We need more sources of information that tell us how to be better, Yeah, how to get into those healthy habits, healthy weight, healthy exercise regimens that we need to naturally have Mm -hmm. because without those voices and those articles and the constant like ringing in the ear, most people are not going to make those changes. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I mean, I'm a capitalist. I'm a free market person. I, I truly believe in the free market system, but I do think that that drive for profit in this industry is causing a lot of problems. I mean, Cosmopolitan magazine is a business at the end of the day. And they put that ad out because they thought it was going to get them attention, which it did. And there's a segment of the population that's going to be like, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. You support the movement that I support and that I believe in. I'm going to buy that magazine. I'm going to support you. There's a profit drive there. And, you know, to me, I mean, I actually think it's evil. I actually think as I think that when you talk about capitalism, one of the things we have to remember is that you have to have a moral component to capitalism. You know, capitalism and free market without any sort of morality is a recipe for disaster. And so when you look at this organization that is I mean, really what Cosmopolitan magazine did is they put their profit over the health and well-being of people. They Mm. put out an article, a cover that is a complete lie that is pushing something that could have absolute deadly consequences for people and devastating consequences for people because that's what's popular right now and that's going to sell their magazine. Well, I think it's even a step further from that because I think the only reason that that cover is a cover is because the cover itself will garner more attention Mm -hmm. than it would have just sitting on the shelf. Yeah. Like I don't think any of the articles inside that magazine would have driven the extra sales or the extra attention. Right. Putting an obese woman on their cover and saying this is healthy led to so much coverage and so much outrage in both directions right happy outrage bad outrage that they did it purely for that specific reason which makes it all the more worse so how you know other than people like you and me who are just again average americans who are not in it for the profit i mean i when i when i sit down you know every week and do this podcast I'm just trying to speak what I believe is the truth and and kind of talk through things that I think are important for people to talk about and for us. You know, I hope that somebody listening to this, like it starts conversations and it, and it gets people thinking. But other than that, I mean, we are not people with this massive, huge platform. How does our society start changing? Because like we talked about, you know, when it comes to intermittent fasting, there's not a huge profit 
opportunity there. So how does our society change to move in a more healthy direction when we can't even have these conversations without being accused of shaming people? Just like in most situations where society makes an adverse change, I think we need to continually push examples of what works, what doesn't work, what actually, like when you see like an Instagram influencer, you don't just trust them. You actually have to continually watch either them or people like them and see how things actually change for them. I think that when I was researching intermittent fasting, when I was researching the ketogenic diet, when I was doing that, I was following people that were starting from scratch and continuing from that point. And I think that that is, we need to promote more voices like that, follow more people that are more willing to just tell you how something works and why it works and when they do their own research. And those are kind of like when you follow people that say follow the science you actually have to follow the science right you can't just say oh you said follow the science so you must be telling me the truth no you have to do your own research and I think that that is the biggest step that I took that actually got me on board with doing multiple things at the same time was following actual science well and, I, and it goes it goes back to what I mentioned earlier which is so many people who have talked to you and asked you really detailed in-depth questions about what you've done you're getting the word out. And the fact that so many people have asked you those questions, I mean, I, I always laugh when you come home from work and you tell me the stories about like the the meeting with the customers was held up because all the customers were asking you about your weight loss and your bosses are getting a little annoyed. But it's like, there's a desire for it. There is a desire that people have to not just get healthier, Okay, which I think is is there again, considering America, as you said, is the most obese country in the world. I think that desire is there because deep down people know, you know, that and they want to feel better. But also, I think that there is a desire for truth and for not people, you know, people don't want people don't want to be duped. People don't want, you know, to be sold a product or sold a regimen or something that it's like, well, you're just going to take my money and it's not going to actually work. I think when approaching this issue as a society, we need to change our focus from solutions to finding that balance. Mm -hmm. Everything is so solution-based. Capitalism is so, uh, you have a problem, I have a product, it'll fix your problem. I think as a society, we need to stop thinking in that specific sense and focus more on finding a balance. Because even in capitalism and moving in a specific direction, it only works when you have that balance, work-life balance, healthy eating balance, exercise balance. All that stuff only works when you find the right balance. And I think that that should be what we talk about as a society is finding that balance instead of finding the solution. Right. And even like intermittent fasting, it's not going to work for everybody. There's some people who you know, whether it's because of the medications they take, that it's just not possible for them. Um, well, and or it's not the only thing. That it's you just need a tool. To do. It's, it's a tool. It's a tool in the process of finding that healthy balance. Yeah. Finding the right diet, eating the right things, doing the right exercises, finding your limitations, intermittent fasting. Using all those together in a certain balance is what will get you the results that you want. And, and then I think once just you like start. Everything else like that is, and then once you start seeing the results it motivates you and you keep going to continue. That's mm-hmm. why I think a lot of times when once people get to a point where they lose like 30, 40 pounds, there's no turning back. Yeah. You don't want to be, you don't want to lose your progress. Right. And I think, 
you know, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is the, it, it kind of also touches on the importance of freedom of speech and it touches on the importance of, you know, a lot, we cannot have censorship, even if it's not censorship from the government, even if it's not censorship from the media or big tech companies, but even the censorship of shaming people, attacking people, canceling people for daring to have these conversations and daring to actually say, no, this lifestyle is not healthy. We have to be allowed to say that. And I think that, I think that what's really interesting is that in every area of life where you see people trying to silence other voices, it's because those voices are speaking the truth. And you know, everything that we're saying here today is the truth. The lifestyle that they're promoting is not healthy. No matter how many times they say it's healthy, it's still not healthy. And that's why, you know, they have to attack people who talk about this. And and it is a tough thing to talk about because, you know, you think about it and you're like, I don't want people to think that I'm attacking them. I don't want people to think that I'm, you know, putting them down because that's not the intention here. The intention here is to, is to sh- spread awareness and to share information about like, you are strong enough to make your life better. You are capable of making this decision. And no, you're not a bad person if you don't make this decision. And if you choose to stay where you are, you're not a bad person. But here is something you could do for yourself that can make you live longer, make your quality of life improve, protect yourself. And I think it's an important conversation to have. So thank you for being here and having this conversation with me and being my first ever guest on the I'm Just an American podcast honored to be here. So as we go into, as we start off a new year on the podcast, I am going to be continuing to talk about situations plaguing American life. And I'm hoping to have more guests on the program to talk about different areas and different things about American life. We talk about politics, we talk about culture, we talk about theology and all sorts of things on this podcast. And so I hope that everyone continues to tune in weekly to hear more about American life from the perspective of just an American. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. Also, please share this episode with a family member or friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJNAmerican. You can also message the show by sending an email to JJ at I'mJustAnAmerican.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at I'mJustAnAmerican. Music for this podcast was written and performed by Michael Beatty. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Beatty 3.